Podcasts are coming. Monday, June 5th, The Ringer is launching Binge Mode, a podcast dedicated to binge rewatching mode. and giving expert analysis on our favorite TV shows. You heard of this? You heard of this podcast? Binge Mode. You're with this? Yeah. For um, the next six weeks, Mother of Dragons, Mallory Rubin, and you, Jason Concepcion, the maester, will dive deep into HBO's Game of Thrones. You've been wrung dry for every last bit of <laughs> Game of Thrones knowledge you have. I, I, I guess that's why I don't remember it. I must have shut it out. <laughs> for the last month or so, every episode of Achievement Oriented has been recorded either just before, just after, or possibly during episodes of Binge Mode, which is coming, as we mentioned, yes. on Monday. From theories to history to your best impersonations of Robert Baratheon. Ooh. You give us a, a sneak preview of that? What is your uh, Actually, like? I, I did my Baratheon on the trailer, but my, uh, mm. it's my Grandmaster Pycelle, I think, is my strongest. My strongest. <laughs> it's a ponderous, ponderous uh, podcast, uh, my dear. Starting on Monday, you can watch along with our Thrones experts. The first 10 episodes of Binge Mode correspond to Season 1 of Game of Thrones. Every Monday after that, we'll release a new batch of 10 episodes leading up to the premiere of Game of Thrones Season 7, if Jason survives to July. (laughs) Subscribe to Binge Mode now on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you get podcasts. Hello and welcome to Achievement Oriented, the Ringer's video game podcast. My name is Ben Lindbergh. I'm a writer for TheRinger.com. And on the other line, the man who podcasts more minutes than LeBron plays ball, it's Jason Concepcion. Hey, Jason. I've got a high PER and my per 36 (laughs) numbers are impressive. (laughs) So we've got a lot to talk about today. Later in the episode, we're going to interview Tom Keegan, who is a longtime video game casting director and performance director. We're going to ask him about how that process works. We're going to talk to him about some of the casting announcements for movie adaptations of video games that we've heard about recently. But I want to talk a bit first. You've been diving deep into Zelda now that you yes. have a Switch. When I called you, oh, I heard Zelda. the sounds of Zelda in the background. Yes. It's that one, the kind of pastoral theme from the grasslands that uh, sounds a lot like A Whole New World from Aladdin. You know, it's yeah. got that flute. Yeah. Um, Yeah, it's John Mayer recently called the Switch the greatest invention for touring musicians. And as a person who just got on a plane to go to a wedding, I concur heartily Mm -hmm. with that. Does the mobile mode impair your experience at all? Do you prefer one or the other? You know, I'm going to sound like a complete like Switch slash Zelda stan (laughs) right now, but... There's something really satisfying about going to the big screen and then switching to the like there's uh, subtle differences on the small screen mm-hmm. it feels everything feels tighter it's much more seamless the cell shading feels just uh, more rich but then you put it on the big screen and the size and the scale really translate and I find myself when I'm at home switching between them for no yeah. particular reason other yeah. than I enjoy doing it <laughs> Yeah, I'll switch for like the more magnificent right. moments, the, yes. the cinematic moments if I'm taking on a boss or something like that. I, I want to see the cinematic in full screen. Yeah. Yeah, but I, I enjoy taking it on the go or even if the go is just like my couch or something, right. which for me, it usually it is, but it's just as fun. It really doesn't lose a whole lot in the transition. And I recently, as in during the flight, unlocked the Master Sword, which is like, a, was a great feeling of accomplishment. Mm-hmm. Um, Justin Charity has been texting me. He's had the switch for a week less than a week <laughs> yeah and last last weekend he's like yeah so i just beat all the beasts and uh you know i'm like just knocking down these these shrines right now i'm like what the, how the fuck how are you doing this what are you doing man <laughs> he's expanding he's acquiring consoles now he's with everyone he gets he had, opens up a new library we're gonna have to have him on again yeah, sometime soon just to chronicle his descent into addiction i know i feel like we've uh i feel like we just bought him a pile of crack or something <laughs> <No>. <laughs> so we're gonna talk about rhyme in just a minute loved your review by the way thank you and before i called you i I was just finishing up the latest season, the third season of Telltale's Walking Dead series, which is called A New Frontier. And we did a whole Telltale episode last year, and a lot of what we said then still applies to New Frontier, because New Frontier does not apply to the technology or to the back end. This still looks very much like a Telltale game. Mm -hmm. I guess 
the new frontier is that maybe the scope of the story expanded a little bit in sort of the same way as as the shows is right now where you're zooming out a bit and including various settlements and it's not just the story of this one band of survivors anymore and so the latest telltale edition tries to do some of that also and, and some of that works well but I think it's kind of held back by the presence of Clementine, which you played the first season, yes, right? I did. Yes, did I you did. play the second season? I did not play the second season. I did not finish the second season. Yeah. So both of those seasons prominently featured Clementine, who is yeah. a, a young girl. When it started, she's older now. And the first season, I don't know how much of it was just the telltale model being new to us and that type of storytelling being fresh and exciting, but it really did tell a, an effective emotional story about Clementine and Lee and the Mm -hmm. father-daughter type relationship. And it was heartbreaking at times. It was affecting. If you played it, you remember it, even though that was a while ago now. And then season two, Clementine was still the, the protagonist. It was her story. It was more of a personal story. And now in season three, she's back, but she's just sort of tagging along. She's in your group, but she's not the main character. She's not really essential to the story. They're sort of trying to establish new characters who stand on their own and some of them do, but they're also bringing Clem along for the ride, and it feels like they're kind of getting pulled in two directions a lot of the time, and you kind of want them to either strike off on a completely new story or just keep focusing on Clementine, because this is the story of Clementine. So that can be a problem, and the animation and the technology holds it back. I had some issues with choices I made transferring from one episode to the next, where it would tell me that mm. I made some decision That's that wonky. I didn't actually That's- make which was jarring yeah (laughs) yeah since the whole thing is about making choices and having those choices mean something so you know there's some kind of cliched characters and there's like the angry brother and you just know it's going to be a problem the whole time and it's building and building and so it doesn't really discover a new frontier it's sort of the same old telltale storytelling and for the most part i enjoyed it but as we discussed when we talked about telltale the last time i think the yeah the ceiling just seems a lot lower than it used to and you know the floor is still fairly high i guess i i mostly enjoyed my time with it but it's forgettable and disposable in a way that the first season wasn't my issue with telltale the writing has always obviously been the star but the thing that always has annoyed me about about mm-hmm. telltale is the gamey parts of the games just feel so tacked on you know it would be like yeah, and yeah it's just, the quick time um, events and i it feels like if there's any kind of room for growth it would be there like some kind of improved mechanic it doesn't have to be anything complex but something that feels more interactive than just kind of like spam this button to crawl away from a zombie mm-hmm. type thing yeah, it's it's largely the same. They've kind of got a new look as far as the direction and the the editing and the cuts, and they get a little more creative with that kind of thing. But the actual gameplay is mostly unchanged. And some of the quick time events, it's weird. The timing varies a lot. Sometimes you'll have a very long time to press a button, seems like too much time, and then suddenly they'll surprise you with one that seems like it was too quick to humanly react to. So often I just die in those situations and have to replay it and and the button presses seem to stay the same every time you play it so it then yeah. just becomes predictable so you know if you've played previous telltale games this is very much the same thing and I would say that if you're gonna play an episodic series like this don't do what I did and play the first two episodes when they came out in December and then wait for the final three which the last yeah, one just came out this week so don't do that Don't do that. I basically, I went like five months without playing the game and then just tried to dive back into it. And it took me like a whole episode to remember who these people were and why I was supposed to care about these reunions and that sort of thing. So the the episodic release schedule can be tough. If it's not like Hitman or something, if it's something like a Telltale game where the story is the draw, I'd say either sit it out, wait for the whole thing to be out, or I guess just play it one by one. But I would probably just recommend waiting till the end if you can. So Rhyme, just the basic setup, the background of Rhyme. This is a a game by the Spanish studio Tequila Works. Not the type of game that you would expect from a studio called Tequila Works, by the way. (laughs) Yeah, not really. It's it's not a party game. It's... uh, 
This was announced in 2013 with this one-minute teaser at Gamescom, and it was just immediately anointed as the next great indie game because it looked like a Mm -hmm. lot of previous indie games. It just looked like Ueda games. It it looked like Eco. It looked like Journey. Some of those influences are intentional. Some of them, the game is just drawing on the same source material as, as those games did. But people were throwing around comps to those games, throwing around Wind Waker comps, and so immediately the expectations got out of hand and the game was not close to done at that point. And after 2014, the studio just kind of went into seclusion for a couple of years to finish the game. And it wasn't clear when or if it would even be coming out or what kind of shape it was in. After that long a silence, I think that hopes were a lot lower than they were when it was initially announced. So it finally came out in May. I played it and I interviewed the creative director, Raul Rubio, and I will play some clips from our conversation in just a few minutes. But I really liked the game. I thought it came together really well. And those influences are apparent. It's similar to, in a way, a game in that you are a preteen androgynous right. figure and you are mostly alone in this abandoned environment with lots of soaring columns and architecture. There's an animal companion, a fox, that helps lead you around and you're exploring and you're trying to escape and you can fall to your death. You can be captured by these spirits, sort of specters, shadows, like in an eco kind of way but it's forgiving. It just respawns you right where you were. So there's not a lot of intense action. The game started, as you'll hear Raul say, they initially planned for it to be everything and to be open world and to have combat and crafting and survival mechanics. And it it really just ends up your basic platformer, exploration, third-person puzzler. And it really does rely on the art style and the aesthetic experience more so than the devious puzzles there are puzzles but they won't really stump you for all that long let me ask you one of, one of the most interesting things from your review is the detail about Raul Rubio's is near death near drowning really experience yes and how that influenced the game mm-hmm. uh, talk about that a little bit because I found it fascinating and also does that come through in any way like how does how does that come through in the gameplay if at all Yeah, it definitely does. And I don't want to give everything away. Right, of course. But, you know, you wash up on the shore of this abandoned island and at first it's very inviting and looks like a paradise and you're exploring and then gradually you get deeper and deeper into the island and it's sort of like journey in that you can see your destination and you're right. making your way toward it there's this tall tower that you're trying to get to and you don't even really know why but clearly you're you're being pointed toward it and as you get deeper and deeper into the game the color palette changes and the island gets more foreboding and darker and it's clear that maybe the island does not want you there and and the tone of the game changes in these subtle ways. There's no dialogue, there's no speech, there's no text. It's told entirely through the environment and body language. And that's, I think, the most impressive part of the game is just that it leads you along and it sort of signals how you should feel and where you should go, but you're not even aware that you're being told or or manipulated. There are no arrows, there are no objectives. It's all done through these subtle aspects of the level design where it will just sort of guide you in the direction you're supposed to go and you're not even aware that you're being handheld. Give me, give me a good example because I love stuff like this. Yeah. This is, I mean, this is what I loved about Last Guardian. And- yeah. So you'll enter a, a big environment and it'll seem like you could go in all sorts of directions and you're not sure which way to go, but somehow you just get funneled in the right direction and and it doesn't feel like it's overly linear or on rails, but it's just like they will highlight a certain building or a path where you're supposed to go. It'll just be a little bit brighter maybe than another one, or it'll just be more inviting in some way. You might not even realize why you're trying that way first, but I found that it often was the way I was supposed to go. And there's kind of a color coding to the game. Certain objects are are marked with certain colors that signal that you can interact with them in some way. And there are context clues where 
the character that you're controlling will make some motion or you can shout or, or hum or make little sounds and all of this adds up or there will be musical cues. The soundtrack is great. It's composed by David Garcia. It has sort of an old school LucasArts style music mm. system so that it will build and swell in certain ways right. as you're going in the right direction, that kind of thing. And very understated, but it, it just all adds up to this very satisfying experience, or at least it did for me. And it's not a huge challenge. You're not going to be banging your head against these puzzles. And so it really does come down to enjoying how you feel being in this world. And without giving away the ending, I, I will say that it's probably one of the most satisfying and memorable endings in a video game that I've played recently. And I can't really say why. Also, in this way, the game doesn't really telegraph which way it's going. You don't really get a sense of what the ending is going to be. And then it mm. just hits you all of a sudden at the end. And it makes you want to replay it to re-experience the whole thing, knowing what you know at the end. So I won't go into any greater detail than that, but I will say that the payoff is is worth it. So I don't know whether it totally lives up to the comparisons that people were making, which were probably unrealistic and unfair at the time. <laughs> nothing, nothing destroys the enjoyment of a game like overheated expectations right. i think that if there's if there's been a theme of, of video game releases over the last 12 months it, yeah. it might very well be that yeah i generally try to reserve judgment until i can actually yeah. play the thing i don't fall too much into the hype cycle anymore so i i didn't really have overly high expectations coming into it so i wasn't disappointed by it and mm. i will say that one way it distinguishes itself from ueda games is that it controls really well <laughs> which is a, a relief rubio says that that one of his influences was Journey. Another was the Jack and Daxter series from Naughty Dog, just Whoa, because of the animation and how yeah. they managed to make the art work with the controls and find a blend there where you never feel frustrated. Frustration is a, a constant companion in Ueda <laughs> games, which uh, you know, right. we debated whether it's intentional or not, whether it is or, or isn't. It can be annoying at times, and you definitely don't get that in rhyme. So it's a kind of a dreamlike game. It, Probably the reviewer's guide said six to ten hours for a full-length playthrough. I was probably somewhere in that range. It has a deeper takeaway than a lot of games. It's worth getting through to get to the end. And Well, I can't wait to play it. Yeah, you should. And when you do, maybe we'll revisit this. Maybe we'll Absolutely. eventually talk about the ending once people have had a, a little more time to experience it yeah. themselves. But I really am glad that they stripped it down from the original plan, which was just to cram everything into this game. And you wouldn't know that was the plan if you come to it without reading about that, because it doesn't feel like anything has been removed from this game or this world. It feels like it was always supposed to be this way, even though that wasn't the case. But I definitely don't wish that I could have been crafting and feeding my character because the original idea was you're stranded on this island. So it's like Robinson Crusoe. You've got to build a shelter. Mm. You've got to feed yourself. You've got to fight off animals. And it was all very complicated. And I don't miss any of that, really. So <laughs> I think that's probably a lesson that other developers could take from this you don't necessarily have to cram every mechanic into your game if it's not really about that if it stands up without it so right now we're going to hear an excerpt from my conversation with raul rubio about 10 minutes or so and then we'll be back with more can you describe some of the changes it went through and some of the features or mechanics that were in there once that you decided not to include or that you added as mm -hmm. time went on because i know it's evolved quite a bit absolutely and it it's funny because these days with all these open approach to development, uh, gamers are, well, more aware of how uh, a production process for video games is, right? I mean, in the old good days, basically, games were canceled without, well, people ever knowing about it. But these days, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a very active and dynamic process uh, thanks to, well, uh, the social media, etc. But you are right. We always had this vision of uh, the island, the tower, the kid. Uh, I mean, this sense of discovery and adventure and wonder and being, well, uh, being able to see the world through the eyes of a kid, right? But at the beginning, uh, we had many more mechanics. But basically what we did was we started to remove everything that was not critical for the experience, right? Uh, at the beginning, well, when we said you are stranded on an island, you need to find shelter and maybe you need to, well, uh, to look for water and food, to fight the wildlife or whatever. Uh, but then we realized that if we wanted you to feel like a kid 
Um, for us, it was more like, okay, remember your memories of childhood when everything was new? So for us, it was like, okay, we are telling the player to have fun and not be aware of the consequences. And I mean, like kids, ignore all the dangers of the world and jump to the water, climb. Don't worry, everything will be fine. And the same time, it's like, oh, yeah, yeah. You need to collect all the pipe corns and you need to eat, well, all this grain or whatever, because uh, when night falls, wolves are going to hunt you and you are going to die. A very terrible death. And that nullified any attempt of discovery or wonder. I mean, people were trying to survive, right? And the experience was not very pleasant. And uh, that's one of the mechanics that we decided to cut. The other, for example, was combat uh, for the same reason. If you're supposed to play as a, an eight-year-old kid, we didn't envision the game for you to find different weapons or, I don't know, to hunt a sword or a spear or whatever and uh, becoming some highly trained, uh, experienced hero. I mean, no, you are a fragile, very helpless little kid. That doesn't mean that in the game, as you know, there's no conflict or, or maybe dangers, but the approach to it is like, well, a child would do. I mean, with ingenuity and maybe using your wits and determination. I mean, it doesn't mean that you are totally helpless, but you need to be smarter because, well, you cannot pretend that you are going to kick ass. Obviously, it's always the course of the creator, right? I mean, when you finish your creation, you always feel frustration because you imagine, I mean, you can remember how you wanted it to be. I mean, your inner vision and how it is, right? And so you can see everything that is missing or everything that is not how it should be in your mind. But in this project, we have learned to be patient and humble in the sense that it doesn't matter how we uh, sow the game in our imagination. I mean, for example, I don't know, you collect different costumes in the game. Originally, those costumes had powers. I mean, like uh, different power-ups. For example, the sea costume, the one that is uh, decorated with patterns of uh, jellyfishes, allowed you to breathe underwater. The problem is that when we started to focus on just the experience as it needs to be and avoiding, for example, unnecessary uh, challenges for the players, etc., etc., these power-ups were breaking the experience. You go back in time to 2015, you would find that the game had almost 500 puzzles. Obviously, they are far less in, in, the, in right now. So one, one thing that we did was, first, removing the crappiest ones. And <laughs> second, being very critical with the most complex ones. In Rhyme, all these rules that we're applying is not only for the puzzles, it's also for uh, narrative progression, right? So it needs to be crystal clear, even if it's something as weird as, if you are a kid, you can believe that you can move the sun and the moon. It's okay, you can do it. If you believe it, yeah, why not? I mean, we, we don't need to overcomplicate it, right? So we realized that, for example, if people found the puzzle, they understood that it was something relevant for the story and uh, it was something that was relevant for the progression in the game. But many of these puzzles were hidden in very, very unlikely places. I mean, they were totally optional, so they were related to the secrets, right? That was really confusing. So we started cutting those. Many of the ones that were moved were really good in terms of gameplay, right, and game design. But in the context of all the experience of Ryan, again, again, driven by curiosity, it's again about exploration, it's about discovering, it's about not being afraid of failing. So if those were the rules, the puzzles should be something that shouldn't get you stuck for long. That's the process we, we follow I mean, as the rest of the game design. I mean, just subtracting everything that was not essential for experience. So you need to learn to see the game, not as you imagine it, but as, as people can see it now. Somehow I always found my way to the right place. I always sort of mm -hmm. sensed where I was supposed to go, even though the game was not explicitly telling me. There were no arrows yeah. or anything. I didn't even realize necessarily how the game was pointing <laughs> me in a certain direction, but it was happening. <laughs> I guess, yeah, well, these are obviously mind tricks. <laughs> yeah. Subliminal messages. <laughs> yeah, well, can you tell me some of the maybe more subtle sure. aspects of the design that help guide the player without maybe even realizing that he or she is being guided? The most obvious one is the fox, right? I mean, the fox, when you wake up, the fox is supposed to be your companion, but but again, the fox is a wild animal, so it's not a dog. He's not following you. Well, quite the opposite. The fox is mischievous, is uh, playful, but it, at the same time, well, it's going ahead of you, playing with you, and disappearing when you don't need the fox, right? So obviously the game is, is taking into account what you are doing. And for example, if you are stuck in a puzzle, now you turn your head and the fox is standing on top of uh, just the place you need to go or the thing that you need to activate, right? And he's barking at you and, and whatever. But then it disappears because it's a fox, right? I mean, that's pretty obvious. Uh, the next one is the, well, the sound. 
and the music. David is not just a composer, he's also a game designer. So one thing that he did is uh, creating a very a soundtrack that is mostly atmospheric, very immersive, uh, when a dramatic moment was uh, achieved. That means that instead of the game trying to tell you how you should feel, like, oh yeah, you are in the middle of this corridor, but this corridor is very depressing, you should feel depressed. Uh, no, it's, it's the opposite. Basically, thanks to David, we implemented this dynamic system that, uh, I mean, the atmosphere is adapting to your actions and the music is kicking when you really achieve something. What we are trying to do is that if the player is feeling this way, we are trying to reinforce that. Another thing is uh, we always say that the island is a character. And uh, in this game is pretty strange in character progression because the kid never progresses at all. I mean, he never changes, right, until the end. Is the player and the island. The island physically changes around you. The island, obviously, is not going to be an island that has a mouth and is going to start yelling at you like, out of here, you were not invited or whatever. It's communicating with you with that sound, with the with the fauna, with the flora, with the breeze, uh, with the trees. One thing that is probably is not very obvious is that the color progression is super important to reinforce those emotions, right? At the beginning, I mean, you have no real purpose, you are kind of lost, but you are having fun, so everything is in doing with, la- with life. You have all these pastel colors, and basically the main colors are just for blue, white, uh, yellow, and sand. But then, when you go to the next stage, everything is reddish. Everything is decrepit and broken. Now, the island is not welcoming at you at all. In a sense, this color progression, this color palette, which is something that is not strange to, for example, animation, films at all. I mean, like Pixar does it in all their movies. It's something that for us in games was, well, mind-blowing because, again, we could reinforce these emotions uh, to the player without telling them, yes, you should be happy. Yes, you should be scared. Also, the body language of the kid, I mean, he may not talk, but uh, all the sounds, the shouts he's making are contextual. So the kid is always talking to you, but obviously he's not talking in any language that you can understand. At the same time, the body language is changing all the time, right? I mean, the kid can feel happy, surprised, scared, depressed, sad, angry. And that's something that you can see while you are playing. As far as the the process of announcing it and putting it out there in the world, the reception was so overwhelming. And I imagine that that is kind of a, a blessing and a curse in that you want your game to get attention, you want to get funding, but you also then have these expectations and comparisons. So do you have any advice, I guess, or things that you've learned the next person who's making a game? How do you tell people about it without increasing the pressure to a level where it it gets in the way of what you're trying to do? First thing I would say is only show the game when it's almost finished. As you know, 10% of the last four is going to take 90% of your time, right? I mean, uh, that's a fact. But for example, many indies, this generation, probably we underestimated the extra cost and challenge of creating for next-gen platforms. And you have seen that games like, for example, Rhyme or Below or Non-Sky were delayed. Uh, I mean, not because we are lazy bastards who don't want to make games, it's because get, making games is hard, right? But I agree that uh, maybe we announced the game too early, too soon. I mean, we expected uh, that the, the development would be faster and smoother. We announced the game because we, we were eager to share with the world what we were creating. But now I would tell you that probably we will have announced this title in 2015, not 13. So that's me, my only advice. I know you are eager to letting the world know that you have something to share with them. More importantly, you need to tell publishers that you need financing. But be very discreet, I mean, uh, because, again, we are dealing with emotions and gamers uh, are very passionate about this uh, this medium, right? And they, they really love games. So, like love, you can love something so much that you finish hating it, right? I know that the perception when you announce a title is that, okay, so is I don't know, you, I announced that T3 is going to be one year, two years away from release. Right? I mean, that's the rule. And if a game disappears, for example, and you hear nothing about the game for one year, two years, that means something bad happened to the game, right? We decided to, to keep silent for a very good reason. I mean, first, we, we wanted to finish the game. Second, we were, as you said, uh, it was a yeah, blessing and a course. I mean, we were overwhelmed, terribly overwhelmed by uh, the pressure. Like uh, people were comparing Ryan to, well, Wind Waker and uh, Ico and, uh, I don't know, even The Last Guardian. I mean, that game was not even released by, at the time. 
So for us was like, oh shit, uh, we want to make this small indie game. I mean, it's a very slow paced game. Uh, it's about exploration, has no combat. People are going to kill us. I mean, uh, take your time. I mean, uh, don't feel the pressure. Uh, you are creating a work of art. And I know money is important, but people will only care if the game is good or bad. They are not going to care about all your suffering, all your blood and sweat, and how much you sacrifice it. I mean, in the end, people don't care if this was a game that you made in your kitchen with a laptop or is basically a multi-million blockbuster franchise. I mean, they only care about good games. So take your time. All right. That was Raul Rubio, creative director of Rhyme. We're going to take some time to hear from a sponsor and we'll be right back with casting director Tom Keegan. Jason and I are both clean-shaven men most of the time, and we know that Dollar Shave Club is the smarter choice to stay that way. Get a great shave at a great price, conveniently delivered right to your door. It's an awesome life hack and a no-brainer choice. You no longer have to schlep to the store to buy a cheap disposable razor that gives you a cheap shave, or spend a fortune on razors with gimmicky shaving tech you don't need. And when you use a Dollar Shave Club executive razor with their Dr. Carver Shave Butter, the blade just gently glides, giving you such a smooth shave. Dr. Carver Shave Butter is transparent for a more precise shave. It helps prevent ingrowing hairs and fights razor bumps, and you too can make the smarter choice by joining Dollar Shave Club. For a limited time, new members get their first month of the Executive Razor with a tube of Dr. Carver Shave Butter for only $5 with free shipping. After that, razors are just a few bucks a month. That's a $15 value for only 5 bucks. In your first month, you get a lot of loot, a weighty handle, a full cassette of four cartridges, and a tube of shave butter. After your first month, replacement cartridges ship automatically at their regular price, and there are no hidden fees and no commitments, so you can cancel anytime you like. You can only get this offer exclusively at dollarshaveclub.com slash achievement. Again, that's dollarshaveclub.com slash achievement. Okay, so we've heard a lot of big casting news for movies that are adaptations of video games this year. We know that Alicia Vikander is supposedly the next Tomb Raider, uh, the next Lara Croft, and Tom Holland is the next Nathan Drake. But we were curious about how this works the other way around when people who make games are casting actors to play characters in those games. And we've had voice actors on the show. We had Jennifer Hale on the show, and she gave us mm-hmm. her perspective, but we haven't heard from someone who actually casts people. So we're talking now to Tom Keegan, who is a director for performance capture and film and games and voiceover. He has worked on many video game series as a casting director and a director, director, the Call of Duty series, the Battlefield series, Wolfenstein, Mirror's Edge, the list goes on and on. So we're happy to have him. And Tom, thanks for coming on. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah. So how do you get into this business? Were you working in film first and then transitioned to video games? Was it always video games? And was this a fledgling field when you were first getting into it in, what, the late 90s, early 2000s, maybe? Yeah, I've been in games since 1998. Uh And it definitely, it's a a long road. And I can say that uh, it involved a lot of strange twists and turns and a lot of luck. But um, my background, I originally was an actor. I'm from New York. I did a lot of theater in New York. I did a lot of movement work, kind of, we would call it like movement theater, like mime, contact improvisation, postmodern dance and movement, acrobatics. I did a lot of performance art in New York uh, in the 80s when that was really the thing to be doing. And um, when I moved out to L.A., I did some more of that, did some commercials, a couple of films, but um, I got into animation. I had some friends who were, had a small, teeny, tiny animation company, and um, I didn't really know anything about animation, but they were doing cell animation with a company in China, mm. and it was fascinating. And I was like the computer guy and the, uh, the development manager for film projects and also answered the phone and everything. And they ran out of money. And on the last day they ran out of money, one of the partners said, well, we're laying you off, but my girlfriend works at Hanna-Barbera and her assistant just quit. Do you want the job? And I was like, hell yeah. <laughs> and um, I went over to Hanna-Barbera and I met this woman, Ellen Cockrell. It was the early days of Cartoon Network. And man, it was the most fun. And it was in the Jetsons building on Cahuenga. Mr. Hanna, Mr. Barbera still came into work every day. 
Wow. And um, we uh, we were working on Johnny Bravo, Cow and Chicken, The Powerpuff Girls, and I absolutely loved it. And then a big company, Time Warner, came in and they bought the company and they laid everybody off and sold the building. And uh, my boss went over to Universal and didn't really like it as much. They weren't really didn't have a, a cable channel or anything. And um, one day I saw this ad in the Hollywood Reporter. And it said, oh, have you, uh, are you a director? Are you an actor? Have you worked with kids? And it was for kids' educational CD-ROMs. Mm-hmm. And so I applied for the job, and I got the job. And it was for this company called um, Knowledge Adventure. And uh, if any of you or your listeners have played um, any Knowledge Adventure games or Jumpstart or Math Blaster, Reading Blaster, those were the games we were making. And I was really torn because here I was working on the lot of Universal and I asked my friend, I said, do you think this CD-ROM thing is going to turn out to be anything? <laughs> and she was like, yeah. <laughs> she said, yeah, I think you should, you know, I think you should try it. And I was like, well, what do I got to lose? It was so much fun. It was really, really fun. And I was, it was super creative. And that kept getting bought. And, and, and it was funny because the people at Universal were like, don't leave. You'll never get back in. Oh, you'll never get back into the lot or television. And the company, Knowledge Adventure, got bought by a French company called Vivendi. Mm -hmm. Well, Vivendi ended up coming over here and buying Universal and became (laughs) Vivendi Universal. (laughs) And so then we were doing all of the movie-based games that Universal had, like Chronicles of Riddick. Right, yeah. That's a very underrated game, by the way. I really enjoyed that game. It certainly is. Yeah, it was a great game. It was dare I say, better than the movie. Yeah, and um, <laughs> and I, I got introduced to the Swedish game developer Starbreeze. And we just got along so great. And I could kind of see the writing on the wall that uh, the Vendi Universal was kind of collapsing because really the only property they had that was really worth anything was... Uh, blizzard mm-hmm. mm. and at just at the time starbreeze called me and they said we have this other game but it's not a unit it's not a vivendi game would you be interested in working on it and at that time people were kind of being laid off and i felt like i was my opportunity to jump so i took a package i started my own company and i worked on this game with starbreeze called the darkness mm-hmm. mm. and it was one of the first performance capture games. I also, also at Vivendi, I did motion capture for the first time. I did, this is kind of weird, I did a dance game based on American Idol. When American Idol first came out, somehow Knowledge Adventure got the rights to make it into a dance game. So I had to hire these hip hop choreographers to do small chunks of dance that you could win by doing a song correctly on the beats and put it together. And I just, and we did motion capture and I loved it. I was like, this is right up my alley. So when um, Starbreeze asked me to do the darkness and they said, we want to do, we want to do motion capture and voiceover at the same time. And we called it vocap. Uh-huh. It was really early days. I mean, like, like they, like they put on like a weird kind of like an operating room cap on the actor's head and they glued all these dots to their face that when people would sweat would start to come off and they would inhale them. And um, we did the whole game one actor at a time in an ADR booth in a sound studio. But wow. no uh, interaction? it was awesome. No. Wow. Because they just didn't have the bandwidth. Yeah. You know, it was, they put people in the same scene, but um, it was, it was mostly first person player. Occasionally you saw the player in third person, Jackie. But it was such a great experience. We kept we, we like kept all the all the execs and everybody at bay, and we just were like making this great experiment. And um, that was another very underrated game, I think, really a, a kind of a cult classic. It, things just started to take off, and I actually a, a lot of the games I do, as you probably know, are with Swedish game developers, like Dice, for example. Mm-hmm. And now the the Starbreeze people. Uh, broke off and they have machine games and so I do the Wolfenstein series with them. The Darkness has a really interesting cast. You've got 
Kirk Acevedo, who's in a ton of stuff, maybe uh, most recognizable from Oz. Lauren Ambrose, yep. uh, Six Feet Under, Mike Patton, the lead singer of Faith No More. Um, yeah. How did you assemble this cast? Well, it was great. And it was um, it was my first really close collaboration with um, Zian Mathis, who is the creative director at Machine Games. We just took our like our favorite shows. And um, Six Feet Under was one of mine. And the, the opportunity to work with Claire and Six Feet Under was so exciting. And Jens is a, uh, is a heavy metal aficionado. <laughs> and he said, oh, there's this guy, Mike Patton. You have to get this guy, Mike Patton. He was unbelievable, Mike Patton. I mean, I worked with a lot of actors and we try to be super careful with actors and their voice and, you know, vocal strain from games because the volume requirements mm -hmm. are usually very loud. Mm -hmm. And Mike could make sound for hours on end. And I'd say, are you tired? Are you feeling okay? Do you want to rest? He goes, no, oh, I'm fine. You know, it's that, um, you know, that, that heavy metal sound and, and vocal production, you know, really trains you. I mean, those are, those are like the ideal video game actors. And um, it's interesting because my assistant at the time was Andrea Toyas, who's now the head of voiceover for Blizzard. And she goes out and hires occasionally, looks for punk rock or heavy metal singer actors to hire for the really extreme stuff because they really know how to do it. Anyway, that was, it, it was, it was awesome to work with him. Really, really amazing. And, um, the cast was really great. Also, all the little roles in that game in the darkness. I think I saw every Italian American actor <laughs> in Hollywood. And some of them were like, one guy was like, he's like, uh, I work for Mr. Rob Lowe. And uh, Mr. Lowe is kind of falling on hard times. So, uh, uh, of course, Rob Lowe's career then did take off again after that. Mr. Lowe's uh, and I was driving for Mr. Lowe, so I thought I'd try the acting thing. <laughs> and, uh, you know, an another guy was like, yeah, I did some time. I'm from New York. I did some time. Probably one of the only actors you'll see who really did time because I ran a string of the size car in New York City in the 1960s. And it was like we just packed the uh, we just packed it with these incredible, you know, actors. It was super fun, super fun. And those are really I love that kind of mix of actors and and super quirky types, mm -hmm. you know, and and, uh, and, you know, it's really and, and I like to I occasionally have cast other people's games like I did some casting work on uh, The Last Call of Duty, but um, mostly just because I know the team really well. And uh, Brian Bloom, who plays B.J. Uh, Blaskowitz and Wolfenstein, was the writer. But most of the time, I like to cast my own stuff because it's such an intimate process, you know, mm -hmm. directing. I mean, I use a casting director. I use this casting director, Emily Schweber, and um, she opens a lot of doors for us. But um, I do most of my own. I do all my own callback auditions because it's a, it's a process of creating a relationship with actors and really... I'll be, I'll be, I'll, I'll meet somebody and I can see on their face when they go out, like that crestfallen look from an actor when they kind of have the feeling they didn't get it. But if I, you know, it doesn't mean, it means they might not be right for this, but I'll, I'll, I'll hunt somebody down like three years later that I remembered. I had that kind of mind for actors that I'll, I'll remember and um, I'll hunt them down. And I'll go, you. I got a role for you. <laughs> so um, it's fun. Mm. It's really fun. So in Chronicles of Riddick, you had Vin Diesel reprising his character from the film. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I would imagine that over the course of your time in the industry, it's probably become an easier sell to get big name actors, many of whom who have been in video games in recent years, to get them in video games now that it's a ever bigger business and maybe more critically appreciated. So... When you're casting and it's not, say, a, a movie adaptation, how do you decide whether you want to go for a known actor or not? Is it, co is it cost effective to do that, especially if it's just a voice role? Do games sell based on voice acting talent, do you think? How do you decide whether you want to go for a, a Kevin Spacey or a Liam Neeson or Patrick Stewart or someone like that who's done some voice work for video games or go for a more accomplished video game only voice actor or someone unknown? You know, personally, I love what I call the HBO level actor. Uh -huh. Those are really my favorite actors to work with because you don't have to cater to their image. And they're really, really good. Mm -hmm. 
I think the jury's still out on whether uh, the high-profile actor is worth it. Certainly, Kevin Spacey in Call of Duty made a huge splash publicity-wise. Right. And a lot of people, they marketed it well. A lot of people stood up and took notice. You know, there's fundamental differences between games and movies in that in the game, it's the game play is really the central factor, right? I mean, the cinematics are definitely an important part of it. And the acting, I, I use the analogy of like a cake, you know, like the, all the gameplay and all the, and all the architecture of the game is like the layers of the cake mm -hmm. and the cinematics and the acting is like the icing on the cake. And it takes a whole lot longer to make, you know, and, and more work to make the layers. But the icing is the thing that attracts people to it in many ways. And um, even though it's a small, thin part of it, it's a very important part of it. And certainly for multiplayer and all, all the online components, it sets the story for the brand. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you, if you do it properly, it can be very effective. But it's also a huge, there's a huge money difference in the way. And this, this is part of why there's uh, labor. Uh, there's a strike on right now. Mm -hmm voice actors and video games, which probably is a whole other podcast. Yep. But um, yeah. <laughs> the monetization of it, the monetization of it is very different. And it's also because there's so much involved in the making of the gameplay and the gameplay, it's hugely collaborative. So, you know, the attention to the individual actor that a movie star likes to have and is used to is not necessarily there. However, I have worked with some great stars if they're in for it and they happen to love games, it can be, you know, and they can kind of set their ego aside. It can be really great. Is the cost factor worth it? I don't know because, you know, I mean, you guys are gamers. Do you, do you buy a game for an actor for if a star is in it? Probably not. Does that attract you to it more? <laughs> yeah, I, I don't, I don't think it would <laughs> probably solely on its own. I mean, it right. might be a bonus, but it wouldn't be the, the major yeah. draw for me. It, it definitely an A-list actor, or even an interesting, you know, B-list actor. It adds a shine to the project. Mm -hmm. That's for sure, right? You know, the money's crazy. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, really, the you know, the difference in money is crazy. But it can be a really good experience if you know the actor is flexible. It's also super hard to schedule actors like that uh -huh. because games stretch out over. It can be over a year or so. And you need people for a short time and mm -hmm. then you don't need them. Right. And then actors like, you know, really busy movie actors are really booked up and you have to ask, what do they get out of it? If it doesn't have the same kind of money, what do they get out of it? Maybe they're, you know, so if they're a fan, if they love the genre and they're adventurous and they want to try something different, it's a great vehicle for a star. If they want to, you know, if they're like somebody who's known for comedy or somebody who's known for drama, but not for action, it's also a great way for someone to, you know, break into the action side a little bit more. That's for sure. Mm -hmm. You've worked on a lot of shooters. How do you cast the cannon fodder? You know, the, the henchmen who are just kind of <laughs> wandering around there. They're talking amongst each other. Maybe they're on the walkie talkie, that sort of thing. Is it often one person or a few people doing many different lines and voices do you try to be a perfectionist about it or is it hey as long as they say the right words the player is worried about how he's going to survive this situation he's not necessarily focusing on the delivery of hey you stop or you know whatever the the generic background line is how how do you fill out all of that kind of the the soundscape of a, a battlefield we have some incredibly talented sound designers at DICE, you know, they have won BAFTAs for the sound design in Battlefield. I don't really want to take credit for it, but we have collaborated quite a bit. And I, I do some training uh, everywhere that I work. I like to do some presentations and, you know, I, they, they've taken a little and run a long way with it. And they're, they're perfectionists as I am. Like I, I feel that every screen has to be really motivated uh -huh. in some way. You know, it has to have something behind it, an emotion. You know, I have like this, several types of screens. Like, uh, I, am I allowed to swear on this? Sure. Yes. <laughs> okay. So, so like the death screens, right? So like there's the save me death screen, right? <laughs> ah! 
<laughs> there's the fuck you death scream. <laughs> ah! You know, there's the um, this can't be happening death scream. <laughs> ah! Ah! You know, uh, oh, there, good... and they have nuance, right? They they definitely have nuance. So I I feel like everything, you know, all, all those voices. Uh, and it, all those voices really make the game, right? And if they're not good, it's like death by a thousand cuts. Mm-hmm. Mm. You know, each little thing that doesn't add up, I mean, it, it drives me crazy in a game. Like if I'm if I'm playing a game and they say, you know, go outside and, um, and find a couch. And I see there's a couch in the place already. I'm like, what the hell? <laughs> there's a couch over there. Yeah. Why do I have to go outside? That's bad. Or if there's like, uh, it's playing a VR game. And um, there's all these beautiful sounds of birds in the background. I'm looking around. I'm like, come on, there's no birds. You've broken. You've broken the reality. You've got sounds of birds and no birds, mm-hmm. right? Now I'm thrown out. So all that stuff, like a, like a, a death of a thousand cuts, it really bugs me. I'm a perfectionist. But um, the people at DICE and also um, the people at Machine Games are really great about, you know, uh, going out and finding really great cannon fodder people in Germany in, in Wolfenstein. There's I'm available. We go to Germany. <laughs> <laughs> I'm available to die anytime in your game. <laughs> hey, give me a, give me a fuck you screen. Let's hear it. It's a little held back. You got to open this throat. Now open, okay, open. Yeah. yeah. Ah! Here, baby. <laughs> Yeah, that's like that's you know you know what I would use you as I would use you as like civilian office worker awesome. uh, being crushed by right. right because there's all those people I love those people I call them you know civilians running screaming get out of the city if you value your lives you know yeah. so, <laughs> you know those people the nerdy scientists who came into the lab and you know found the creature crawling around with broken glass. <laughs> Right. Yeah. 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 That it's got to be hard to to bring that emotion out if people are just sitting in a in a small cubicle or some little box shaped room by themselves with a microphone and they're trying to capture this blood curdling scream of their lives being threatened. I'd, I'd imagine there has to be a lot of note giving from you that that wasn't quite blood curdling enough. Or... <laughs> good imagination, good imagination and good, you know, good pipes, mm-hmm. I think, Yeah, you know, or at least a, or a raw, because at the end of the day, also, you don't want to destroy people's throats. Right. You want to protect people's throats. So, um, you know, it's, it's a professional who's willing or or someone just getting started, um, you know, it's it's good. You've, I, I have my stable of people, and uh, more and more, I find though the sound designers are taking acting classes and kind of getting more into you know how important it is to get the right tone. They call it they call it temperature in Sweden. They like to say the right temperature mm-hmm. to um, the screams and and cries and all that kind of stuff. But the little roles that are the little speaking roles, those you, I, I love to, a lot of times I'm able to just pick people that I know and love or, or I've met or, you know, came in an audition and they wouldn't be right for it, but, you know, find little, we had a guy that was in, unfortunately he's passed away, but he was in Chronicles of Riddick. He played Pope Joe. There was a character called Pope Joe that gave the Vin Diesel character new his eyes, mm-hmm. his night sight. And um, he was like an older African-American man who had been in a lot of plays and regional theater, but also had worked as an Amtrak train conductor his whole life. And he had the most wonderful way of like fracturing words uh, and and splintering words and it was so it was it was he like was a it brought he brought a real emotionality to it and he had these kind of quirks in the way he spoke and 
And um, he would, you know, it, it was just awesome. People like that. I get to assign all those little characters. And those are some of the most fun ones to cast. Willis Burks II. Willis Burks II. Yeah. 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 You must have a lot yeah. of regulars that you can call on for, for various roles kind of in your, your contacts list. I do. I call them Tom Keegan players. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, and some of them are, are very distinguished actors like Jeff Berg is one of my favorite ones. He, he was in, uh, starred in Battlefield 1 in The Friends in High Places episode the gambler he was also in mirror's edge misty lee i work with a lot she's a very well-known voice actor karen david she's kind of a rising tv star people all these like great people who do you know uh wonderful wonderful roles wonderful work Mm -hmm. and how has the rise of mocap and the increasing sophistication of mocap changed your job do looks matter more than they once did does the ability to they do emote facially matter more than it used to is whereas you know it does. yeah so how has that changed yeah. things or, or limited the the pool of people who can play these roles well you know one of the things is we're casting people for how they look which you know makes it much harder and um makes it a little harder for the really great voice actor i mean we love our great voice actors and they're so well known in games and such professionals, but uh, but now you know a lot of times we're having to cast, you know, get someone who who sounds good, looks right, you know, we're using their face. So um, it has made it harder and more competitive. You know, also you do have to have people who, because for TV and movies, especially in close-ups, actors are trained not to move their face at all, hmm. not at all, and. Because the face cap, you know, isn't as detailed, we have to have people who move their faces. But as it gets more and more, as each year as it goes on, then then it changes a little bit. Because if they're moving their face too much, then it looks goofy, right? So, um, you know, it's a constantly changing technology, but actors find it super fun. I mean, they really do. They love it. Once they get into it, they get into the bodysuit and they get the head cam on. They love it. It's a lot of fun. We use, uh, I use improvisation a lot also. So I, I love actors that are flexible and can bring something to it. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, we wanted to close with a sort of lightning round. And in light of the, the Tom Holland as Nathan Drake news, we wanted to go through some other projects that are reportedly in development or stuck in development hell or have been rumored to be adapted as movies and wanted to have you go the other way. And if you were casting these movies adapted from video games, who would you choose as your lead? So we'll go quickly through here. And if you have any people in mind, let us know. So The Last of Us, of course, a a popular adaptation target. Do you have Mm -hmm. any Mm -hmm. Joel and Ellie ideas, maybe other than Ellen Page, who looks a lot like Ellie and and caused some controversy a few years ago? You know who might be interesting uh, would be Millie Bobby Brown. Do you know Mm. who she is? She's from um, Eleven. Oh, yeah. um, Stranger Things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Joel, I was thinking, he's probably, you know, not well known enough to start, but of course, Michael Wincott Mm. would be amazing in that role. But if you needed a star, I'd go maybe with Viggo Mortensen. Uh-huh. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. One problem with maybe casting video game characters is that often they are not realistically proportioned and they have uh, all kinds yeah, of yeah. powers and it's hard to find someone who actually mm-hmm. looks like them. So if we wanted to go with someone like Dante from Devil May Cry or, or Kratos from God of War, any ideas for, for people like that? Very distinctive looks. Gosh. You know, Kratos, actually, I can't, it's hard to imagine someone looking like him. <laughs> right. I would definitely cast an actor of color in that role, for sure. Mm-hmm. You know, like my favorite actor of color right now is Michael B. Jordan, but I'm not sure he's big enough mm. for Kratos. Michael B. Jordan, a star of NBA 2K17. Yeah, yeah. So he's he's been in the yeah, biz. Yeah. yeah, he can do it. Maybe like a yeah. Jason Momoa or something when he's done with mm. Aquaman. Oh, uh, yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. That could be, yeah, and he's got the voice, too. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. That's a good one, for sure. Dante... Dante was thinking, I don't know, maybe Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. You know, with a, with, a, with a wig. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> with, a, with blonding, blonde, blonde him up. Uh-huh. 
Uh, <laughs> I listed Adam Jensen from Deus Ex, who's not really a that distinctive a, a character, but a distinctive game. He'd have to have the ability to convincingly play a spy and sneak around, but also be a hacker and run and gun, be sort of mysterious. I was thinking about, I mean, Keanu Reeves. Oh, yeah. Okay. Like with that minimalist, <laughs> good fighter, but minimalist. Yeah, that could work. How about Gordon Freeman from Half-Life? So that he got into a situation that he uh, wasn't trained for, more of a scientist type, forced to fight and explore, got the glasses and the crowbar. Gary Oldman? Ooh. Okay. Yeah, I like that yeah. One. He's, yeah. He's got All the right. game experience too, Yeah, right? for sure. And then I was thinking like Master Chief from Halo, but maybe if you're in a helmet and a suit the whole time, that's not a, yeah. not a very attractive role for, for an actor. Or maybe you just get a voice actor with a, a body double or someone who's inside the suit. Somebody with a good voice, maybe like Will Arnett or somebody like that, Ooh. you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. Playing against type a little bit. That'd be good. Yeah, yeah. against type, but got that, you know, quality. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, the Le Lego Batman look. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yes, exactly. How about a stealth character, like a Sam Fisher from Splinter Cell, Solid Snake from Metal Gear, military training, elite tactics, soldier type? Well, you always have Tom Hardy for that, right? Like, right. you know, tough guy. Yes. Yeah, you put on the, the night vision goggles and the mask, and that right. seems like it's right up Tom Hardy's right. alley. He doesn't have, yeah, to, doesn't sure. have to say anything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and how about Commander Shepard, the female role for Mass Effect, played by Jennifer Hale originally, the yeah. captain, intrepid, explorer, inspiring leader type? Hmm. I don't know. I would think like you probably want a really big actress, somebody like Charlize Theron or Angelina Ooh. Jolie, maybe mm. somebody like that. That sounds right. Emily Blunt, maybe Jessica Chastain. Yeah. I've got a couple more. Geralt from The Witcher, kind of yeah. a, a rogue, promiscuous seducer. Maybe like Benedict Cumberbatch. Oh, mm. look at the oh, little hair, okay. the wig on him. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, kind of a mystery, mystery person. Quirky. Yeah. Okay. Chell from Portal, a non-speaking role. I guess you'd have to beef up that role a little bit or, or maybe just have uh, someone who is more of a martial artist or someone who's not known for, for speaking ability, but you just kind of glimpse her from time to time as you go through the facility. So I don't know if anyone stands out in particular there. Maybe you go with someone lesser known there. Wow. Kind of stumped on that one. That's a tough one. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Gina Carano or someone like that who's more of a physical actress. Yeah, yeah, right. A lot of ways you could go with a lot of these. I don't know if it's easier or harder to cast in this direction or the direction that you're normally casting when you're going from something else to a video game or uh, a video right. game to a movie. Right, right. All right. Well, this has been fascinating. Glad that you could join us and, and tell us a little bit about how this side of the industry works. And you can find out more about Tom. Look at his very lengthy list of credits on TomKeegan.net. You can contact him through that site, too. And uh, we really appreciate your time. Thanks, Tom. All right. Well, thanks, you guys. Take care. Okay. So we will cut it off there. We will hear you next week on Binge Mode. People can listen to 10 episodes of you <laughs> talking about Game of Thrones while you're still recording more episodes of Binge Mode. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, uh, we will talk to you all on Achievement Oriented next week. Talk to you then. See ya. For a great shave at a great price, join Dollar Shave Club. New members get their first month of the Executive Razor and a tube of Dr. Carver's Shave Butter for only $5 with free shipping. After that, razors are just a few bucks a month. That's a $15 value for only 5 bucks. Get yours at dollarshaveclub.com slash achievement.